Okay, um, today I'm going to talk about meditation. And the reason I'm going to talk about meditation is because uh, our Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday night meditation is becoming more popular. And so I want to uh, sort of share with you what might happen if you come on a Wednesday at 7.30, a Friday at 7.30, or a Sunday at 7.30. If you come early, the door may not be open. It sometimes is, but sometimes it's not. Now, meditation is at 7.30, and say you come at 7.15. And now you see a closed door, and you feel really uncomfortable, and you have this desire to push the bell and get somebody to open the door. But that's not the Zen way. The Zen way is to wait (laughs) until the door opens. And sometimes it may not open at all. But the waiting is the most important part. When waiting is filled, the door will open. And what you're going to do is come in and wait some more as you sit on a cushion waiting for enlightenment to happen. So you're really missing the point of pushing that button. Urgency is not important when it comes to waiting. Waiting is a you and is a unique technique that we use in our meditation center to encourage enlightenment to occur. So why do we have a meditation practice if we're just waiting? Because it gives us something to do while we're waiting. So we have two kinds of waiting that we can do. We can do samatha waiting or we can do vipassana waiting. Now, samatha is tranquility, and vipassana is insight. So these are two forms of waiting that we encourage you to do because it makes waiting just a little easier. Sometimes waiting seems to be a really long time, and sometimes waiting seems to be a really short time. It's just fascinating how the mind will play with us as we sit and wait. Now, one of the techniques that I like to use is... Watching my breath go out and come in, go out and come in. This is a basic meditation technique found both in tranquility meditation and vipassana. And it goes in two different directions when you hit the fork in the road. So if you're going to go into samatha meditation, you're going to go into extreme focus extreme focus. And if you're going to go into vipassana meditation, you go into momentary focus. So we have extreme and we have momentary. And I want to talk about extreme focus at first. So we come into the meditation center, the door finally opened, and we find chairs set up and we have cushions on the tatami mat here. And now you have to pick your cushion. Now some cushions people get attached to. And if they come on a regular basis, they like to sit in the same place every time. So if it's your first time, you may not know who's sitting on what cushion and what cushion they're attached to. They may ask you to move, but more than likely, they'll put up with you sitting in their place on their cushion, even though they don't have a place or a cushion. And we sit. And now Kusla comes in, or Venita comes in, And we take our position next to the bell. So that's our place. We sit next to the bell because the bell regulates our waiting, our meditation. 
When we start, we ring the bell three times. That signifies that we are beginning to wait. Okay. And as you sit waiting, you bring your attention to the tip of your nose and you feel the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. And I would recommend the beginner start counting each breath, whether it be in and out or just in or just out. It's up to you. And you go from 1 to 10 and 10 to 1. 1 to 10 and 10 to 1. Now that's the beginning counting of meditation. As you become more advanced in your counting, then you go 1, 2, 1, 2, 1, 2. And when you become really advanced, you go 1, 1, 1, 1. And eventually, you have to let counting go. Because counting is a concept. Numbers are simply concepts. And that prevents us from the direct experience of our reality because the concept gets in the way. So we have to let go of the concept of counting and we simply come to the sensation of breath and have our mind, have our attention rest on that sensation. Now, it's more difficult because counting was like a tether that tied our breath and our mind together and now we're going to lose the tether and our mind is simply going to float or rest on top of the breath and if we lose the breath if we can't find it anymore we have to go back to counting and you start with 10 1 to 10 then you go 1 to 2 and then you go 1 1 1 and then you let go again and simply rest on the sensation of breath now interesting thing that happens when you focus on breath without counting is all those concepts, that internal dialogue, starts to quiet just a bit. You know, and, and, and it's rare because our internal dialogue goes all the time. Morning, noon, night, even when we're sleeping, those dreams are just internal dialogue with words and forms and sometimes even color. If you've ever had a color dream, man, that's the best. You never want to wake up from that. But most of the time, in my case, it's black and white. It reminds me of the 1950s television I used to watch when I was a kid. And, and then you wake up and then you have more thinking to do. What am I going to do today? What do I have planned? Where am I going to go? You know. And if you have a life that requires you to be present, you know, you say to yourself, I've got places to go. I've got people to be. Now, who are you going to be today? What are you going to do today? You know, because each day is the first time we've ever experienced it. So if you had a bad day yesterday, today's the day when you're not going to have a bad day because it's not going to be you having a bad day. It's going to be you having a good day. And of course, good is a value that we give arbitrarily to each day. And if you get rid of good, then you're just going to have a day. And then if you get rid of I'm going to have a day, then you're just going to do and not be. How cool is that? Just to do and not be. So here we are sitting quietly and our internal dialogue starts to settle a bit. And now we lose past and future. We've come into the time machine now. 
This is the Zendo time machine. And the past and future no longer exists in the way it did when we walked into the Zendo. And here we sit in the present moment experience of our life. And we say, okay, so what is that? What is that present moment experience of our life? Well, it tends to be sensory. We have sight, and we have sound, and we have smell, and we have taste, and we have touch. And until we add a value to that, until we add good or bad, bright or dark, sweet or sour, it's simply a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch. And when that starts to occur in your meditation practice, there's a greater sense of relaxation that just sort of permeates every cell in your body. It's a wonderful experience because driving here made you go nuts. Trying to find parking made you go nuts. And now you get to sit and just let all of that go, just drain away. And here you are in the present moment experience of your life. Just doing your sense doors, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It's said in the Basuti Maga, the path of purification, there are things called jhanas, which are deep states of concentration, deep states of relaxation. And in the first jhana, we have five characteristics. We have applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. So it's broken down like this. We have applied thought and sustained thought. We are sitting on our cushion, waiting for enlightenment to happen. We are applying our thought to the sensation of breath, which is our object of meditation, and we're holding it there. Applied thought and sustained thought. Finally, when the mind just rests on the object of meditation, we no longer need applied thought and sustained thought. And then we go into the second jhana, the second level of relaxation, of tranquility. And we have three characteristics. We have peace, we have happiness, and we have equanimity. Now, in order to get to peace, we've got to get rid of pleasure. And I know it's a difficult choice to make because pleasure is wonderful. And it's encouraged by everything in our in our society, to go towards pleasure and away from pain. And when you meditate long enough, you realize that you do not have control over pleasure or pain. It's not up to you. It's up to circumstances. So what you need to do is you need to let go of your attachment to pleasure and your aversion to pain. Now, it's easier to let go of the aversion to pain than it is the attachment to pleasure. But pain and pleasure are simply two sides of the same coin. Okay, so how do you let go of pain? Because if you sit long enough, you will experience pain. Two ways to do it. You become the pain, or you anesthetize the pain. Now, to become the pain is difficult, and I have found it never works that you want to merge with the pain and not be separate from it. And that way, you don't feel the pain as being your pain because there's no you to feel the pain. There's just pain. 
And I'm sure some of us have sat in pain during our meditation and just felt terrible because there's no place to hide. You have become pain. And it's very uncomfortable. So how about anesthetizing the pain? That might be more practical in the beginning. And that would be focusing so directly on your object of meditation that your mind is averted from the pain and into the object of meditation. And the more you concentrate, the more you focus, the less pain you feel because your mind can only do one thing at a time according to Buddhism, but it can do it really quickly. And that's why it feels like we can do 10 things at a time. But Buddhism says we can't. So if you're focusing completely on your sensation of breath or a mantra, you can actually subdue the pain and anesthetize the pain and continue with your meditation practice. So what you might want to do is try it sometime and see if it works for you. Or not. And if you don't want to try that, what you could do is you could move your leg or go from the cushion to the chair or do a little walking and just to stretch everything out. But you know after doing that for a while, the pain always comes back. Sometimes worse, sometimes not as bad. But you can't run from it. It's there for a reason. It's telling you that you'll be dead soon if you don't do something about the pain. And when you're sitting in meditation, that makes perfect sense. Because you got nothing else to think about other than the pain taking over your body. Kusta's going to have to call 911 now and stop the meditation. The paramedics are going to come here and revive me because my knee was so sore that I collapsed from the pain and went unconscious. And now I find myself in the hospital and I don't have health insurance and it's going to cost me a fortune. And it all started because I was meditating. That's the story. It's a wonderful storyline and it makes perfect sense as you sit in meditation with nothing else to think about. So, Sometimes we just have to sit with the pain until it goes away by itself. And it will. Eventually, if you sit long enough and enough times, you don't really feel pain. I don't know where it goes or why it's not there. Maybe you've just gotten accustomed to it or used to it. But now you say, okay, no attachment to pleasure, no aversion to pain, and you go into the second jhana or third jhana. And the third jhana has two characteristics now. It has happiness and equanimity, And in order to get to equanimity, you're going to have to let go of your happiness. Your attachment to happiness and your aversion to sadness. You're going to have to work with that now. So there's different levels, different levels of concentration, different challenges, different bumps in the road. And you're going in one direction and you're going to one place and that one place is equanimity perfect balance of mind, unconditional acceptance of the way things are, choiceless awareness, where nothing is a problem and nothing is fantastic. (laughs) You're just simply going to be in the present moment of your experience in a very healthy way. And then the gong rings. And you go, okay, 
He finds your car. It's still in one piece. You hit the 405 freeway. People are cutting you off. You start to yell at them, do sign language with them. And all that meditation that you have been involved in to get to that perfect equanimity goes right out the window until you achieve nirvana. So it's always going to be temporary. And sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse, but it's always temporary until nirvana. And once you achieve nirvana, it doesn't go away. But you have to wait a really long time to achieve nirvana. Not one lifetime, not two lifetimes, many lifetimes. None of us know how long we've been meditating, how long we have been involved in Buddhism. I can't remember any of my past lives, but I'm assuming that something in a past life directed me in this life to come to this meditation center and find Buddhism. And there you go. How many more lifetimes do I have? Uh, awful lot. I, I'm not even close. But that's okay. I've got other work to do. And, and, and there's always something to do until you achieve nirvana. So, let's talk about Vipassana now. Say you don't want to be in tranquility. Say you don't want to have equanimity. Say you want to feel a little pain once in a while. Say you enjoy sadness because it gives you a chance to be a victim. How about, <laughs> how about Vipassana? How about insight meditation? So there's four kinds of insight meditation according to the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification. Mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of the body, and mindfulness of body sensations. So let's talk about sensations. We have how many sensations in Buddhism? We have two. We have good sensations and we have bad sensations. And we have neutral sensations as well, but those don't catch our attention. So we're going to say with good and bad. So now your job as a Vipassana waiter is to sit and watch sensations arise and label them as good or bad, positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. So you take your position, you come to the sensation of breath, you get focused on that, there's a momentary time necessary to bring your mind into focus. And then with that focus, you start at the top of your head and go to the tip of your toes and go up and down, up and down, up and down, looking for sensations. And if you're a beginning meditator, they're going to have mostly unpleasant sensations. So you notice those. You don't, you don't criticize them. You don't analyze them. You say pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, up and down, up and down. If you happen to find a pleasant one, you say pleasant. It's rare in the beginning, though. And then you keep going back and forth, back and forth. Now, the most important thing you're going to do with this kind of meditation is you're going to go to a deep state of reflection on the sensations that you have been able to become aware of, and you're going to see if they fit into three categories. These are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate you. The first one is anicca, impermanence. Were all these sensations impermanent? Did anyone not change? Did anyone seem independent? Did anyone seem to last during complete time I was meditating? And if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to say they were always changing. 
They were never the same moment to moment. And sometimes they got worse, and sometimes they got better, and sometimes the pleasant ones didn't last long enough, and the unpleasant ones lasted far too long. Okay, so there you are, and you're analyzing and analyzing, and then you take what you've learned from that personal experience of sitting on the ground, and you apply it to the world around you. Is there anything in the world that doesn't change? Is there anything that in the world that's independent of conditions? And you go, wow, you know what? Everything changes. Even the mountains turn to dust, given enough time. And one day, our sun will burn out, and the planet will be just a frozen ball in the cosmos, and no life will be supported. And wow, that's going to happen too. And one day, it's just going to be worse or better than it is today. Now, I have found, after 70 years of existence, that it never gets any better. It only gets worse. But that gives you something to work with. Okay, how bad will it be today? Let me see. Let me see how I can come to a place of acceptance with that. Let me see how I can look at that as being completely normal and natural. Because everything changes all the time. Okay, so the first concept we're going to apply to our Vipassana meditation is that change is everywhere and that's life. The second thing we're going to see is did every sensation I experienced, was it uncomfortable? Was it unsatisfactory? Was it not so good? Could it have been better? And you go, well, you know, most of my experiences in meditation were very uncomfortable and not satisfactory at all. But now and then, there was a pleasant sensation. And that was really nice. That was a nice break from all the unpleasant sensations. But you know what happened with that pleasant sensation? It changed. And because it changed, it became unpleasant. Because I wanted it to last forever. And it didn't. So we'd have to come to the conclusion, if we're being honest with ourselves, that, yeah, everything in life, because it changes, will be ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, that ultimately is a very important word because it says that there are plenty of pleasant things in the world, but they don't last. There's no unchanging pleasant quality that I can attach to and be completely satisfied for the rest of my life. You know, and and you might say, but I just got that new Apple computer and it is wonderful and I am so happy. I can't see how this could cause me any suffering. And then the new model comes out and you realize that you need that now instead of the one you have because you'll be so much happier if you do have that one. So you get that one and the cycle continues, you know. And and maybe you're really into relationships. Maybe you're looking for that special person and you finally find them. And you're so happy that you're in relationship with them. And then they change. And then you change. And you go, what the hell was I thinking about? You know, because everything changes. So even being in relationship is no guarantee that you will be happy forever and ever. And even if you're out of relationship and just have you, you change too. And you might like yourself during some periods of your life, and you might hate yourself during other periods of your life. 
So we're always constantly looking for that one thing that will give us eternal happiness, and there is only one thing that will do it, and that is nirvana, the ultimate peace, the ultimate satisfaction, equanimity, the world being exactly the way it's supposed to be every day, every moment. But we have one more characteristic of the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that we need to investigate now. And we say to ourselves, all the sensations I became aware of, did they exist independently from me? Did they have their own life? Could I qualify them as being they're there because that's where they're supposed to be? And you go, you know what? If I hadn't been sitting on the floor for two hours, I wouldn't have had those sensations. If I had come a little earlier or left a little sooner, I wouldn't have those sensations. If I had had a better lunch or dinner, I wouldn't have had those sensations. And what we start to realize that nothing inherently exists by itself. That everything in our life is conditional. It's there because of other things. Oh, you go, man, no, it's there because of other things? You mean I'm not in control? You know, somebody asked me the other day, how many cats do you own, Kusla? I said, you can't own a cat. (laughs) And, And that's how it works. We can't own ourselves either. If we want to change something, in order to change ourselves, we have to change the conditions that make us do what we don't want to do. We have to change the conditions. You can't change yourself without that. So, the Buddha said, back in the old days, you know, maybe there isn't a soul, which just freaks everybody out. Because I know everybody wants to have a soul, and you're looking for your soulmate, and it's really cool to have a soul. But you know what? The soul, as I understand it, is always independent and unaffected by all the stuff you do, and will exist far longer than you do in an unchanging way until the next rebirth or reincarnation and blah, 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 blah. But it's far too cosmic in 2020 or 2019. So what we say is, I am not the self. That the self occurs because I have a body and a mind and a human rebirth. And that human rebirth is really the key to this self because no other animal on this planet has the same kind of self that we do. We have a really unique self. We feel independent. We have time. We have past and future. Most animals just live in the present moment. We know things could be better. Most animals haven't got a clue that things could be better. They're just trying to deal with what's going on right now. So here we are looking at these sensations that we become aware of in our meditation practice, and we start to apply the three characteristics of Buddhist wisdom. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. All things change. Because all things change, there is suffering, and there is no one to suffer. Now that's a profound statement. That's what the Buddha realized, that there was no one to suffer. And if you completely understand at all the levels you know and understand at that no one is there to suffer, you won't suffer. It will never be your suffering. And then 
you say to yourself, well, what is suffering? What is suffering? Can we find it in the world? Does it have a color or a shape or a form? I don't think so. I go out on New Hampshire Boulevard and I don't see suffering. I see cars and I see people and I see cats and grass and trees. But I don't see suffering. Suffering seems to be an internal, internal experience of the way things are or the way things could be. So when we look for suffering, we have to look inside, not outside. The conditions that cause suffering are outside, but not the suffering itself. So if you are suffering, you are internally feeling uncomfortable, dis-ease, could be better, could be worse, I wish I was at Disneyland. All sorts of things could be going on in your head, and what you need to do is come to that place of balance and equanimity to let go of your suffering. Because it's your suffering. You're in charge to a point, and then your practice is in charge after that. And the more you practice, the less you will suffer. And that's why we open the door Wednesday night at 7.30 so you can practice not suffering. But you will suffer, and we'll be here to say, yeah, I'm suffering too. But because you're suffering and I'm suffering, we are friends. You go, whoa, okay, Suzuki Roshi said that. I posted that on Facebook just the other day. Because you're suffering and I'm suffering, we're friends. So you look at all the people in the world, I haven't found any that aren't suffering yet. So we are literally friends with everybody in the world because we all have that in common. We are suffering. Some suffer more, some suffer less. But until you achieve nirvana, that will be your link to humankind. You are suffering, they are suffering. And because we're Buddhist, we can do something about it. So the Christians may find that suffering ends in death, reborn in heaven. The Buddhists say, suffering ends when my practice kicks in and I achieve nirvana. I don't have to wait to die to end my suffering. I can end it today. Today might be the day. And when I talk to Isaac on meditation, I say, Isaac, is today the day? And he says, let's go find out. 